Hi, Mrs. Benson. So tell me why you made this appointment. Um, well, I'm, I'm sure that it's nothing, but for a while now I've had this nagging feeling that something is wrong internally. I mean, I'm a healthy person, you know? When everyone else in the house is out with a bug, I'm the one who keeps things running. I'm just gonna ask you some questions. Now, when did these on and off issues begin? Um, it was around the holidays, I think. Yes, it was around Christmas, because my husband got me slippers for Christmas. Sorry? I didn't want the slippers. I wanted a necklace from Jared's in Burlington. It was silver and had these swirly little charms on it. I just thought if I had that, it would make me feel happy. It would, it would make me feel beautiful. You know, if, if I had that, people would know that I was worth it. And then I opened the slippers and I was upset for days. Mm -hmm. So this was around the end of the year. Mm -hmm. Tell me more about your symptoms. <sighs> okay, um, I get these like, almost like attacks, you know, where my, my stomach gets all in knots and, and I, I stop thinking clearly and I buy something I regret. I see. Anything else? Um, I've also been very jealous lately. Like my coworker who got jewelry for Christmas. Um, and giving, too, has become almost impossible. And I, I go to the store and I keep coming home with far more than I intended, but it just, it never seems like enough, you know? The last thing you mentioned, coming home from the store? Yes, once a month, twice a month. Well, when it started, uh, it was once a month, but more recently it's been like once a week. Is that bad? Have people in your life noticed a difference? Well, when the symptoms come, you know, I, I try and hide them. I don't want to make anyone worry. But um, my husband has noticed a few charges on the credit card. I mean, I looked this up on the internet, right? And, and it doesn't seem like my symptoms are worse than, than normal. I mean, this is probably something that'll go away on its own, don't you think? Do I think it'll go away on its own? No. No, Mrs. Benson, unfortunately I don't. Mr. Evans, I'm glad you could make it in today. Our records show that you've canceled your last four scheduled checkups. Four? Really? Well, it's not as though I can't take care of myself. <laughs> Been doing it for 41 years and things are going just fine. More than fine, actually. Well, that's good to hear. Are you getting exercise? <laughs> you could say that. I did run a marathon last month. Great. You probably want to know my time. 3.32.04. Excellent. So, do you play sports? I do. I make fitness a priority. So, what do you do? Walking? No, actually, I do triathlons. Ironman distance. I've heard they've really relaxed the standards on those. Pretty much anyone can sign up for those these days. Really? Yeah. 
Uh, so let's see, um, how is your professional life going? Any difficulty with stress, making ends meet? Well, you know, stress just comes with the job and the territory when you're a senior partner. And you're a senior partner? Youngest in my firm's history. Of course, it's all about your education, as I'm always telling my son. Uh, it does say in my file that I went to Princeton. I'll make a note of it. Speaking of your son, your chart says that you were coaching his Little League team. Are you still doing that? Uh, unfortunately, no. I had it after last year. I mean, there are parents out there that haven't touched a baseball, and they're telling me what to do? <laughs> I don't think so. You know, Doc, I'm a little pressed for time today, but I think we can agree things are pretty much on course here. I can probably skip the next four of these. <laughs> What? Mr. Evans, there, there is something that I'm concerned about. Quite concerned, actually. Really? I is it something I can take a pill for? What is it? What do I have? What is it, Doc? What do I have? What's wrong with me? It's a question we all ask from time to time. Like when we blow up at our kids or co-workers again over some minor offense. What's wrong with me? When we come home from the store with something else that we don't need and can't afford. What's wrong with me? When we wolf down that jelly donut in the break room when no one's watching. What's wrong with me? When we fantasize about intimacies with a stranger or a colleague, what's wrong with me? When hearing about someone else's vacation or promotion makes us mad instead of happy. When we realize we've wasted another evening watching Duck Dynasty or HGTV. When we're driving home from a party and realize we spent the whole evening talking about ourselves. In moments like that, we realize that something is wrong inside. We're, we're, we're sick. I mean, we're, we're not our best selves. We're, we're not functioning at full capacity. And whatever's wrong in there, it's, it's, it's ruining everything. It's robbing us of joy. It's wreaking havoc in our relationships. It's ruining our witness as followers of Christ. And whatever it is, it's, it's not going away by itself. What's wrong with us? And what's wrong with us is that we're sinful. It's not a pleasant or popular diagnosis, but that's the truth. No matter how much we may bristle at that word, no matter how much better we may feel than the people around us, we all know deep down inside, we are not the people we were meant to be or want to be. Something is wrong. How did this happen? And what, if anything, can make us better? Well, today we're beginning a new series we're calling Sick, Facing What's Wrong Inside. It'll carry us through the season of Lent. We're going to be exploring the so-called seven deadly sins handed down to us from church tradition. 
Now, Lent is a season of repentance and reflection, preparing us for Holy Week. And so for these next 40 days or so, we're taking a bit of a break from our Living on Mission theme this year and focusing our thoughts inward for a little while, inviting God to search our hearts, to reveal and heal what's going on, what's going wrong inside of us. And we're going to use the seven deadly sins as a sort of diagnostic imaging tool. Now, a little background on the seven deadly sins. They did not originate with a Brad Pitt film back in the 90s. <laughs> and no, I don't recommend the film. They actually go back quite a bit farther than that. All the way back to the days of the Old Testament, actually. Now, we don't actually find our particular list in the Scripture, but in Proverbs chapter 6, we're told, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to Him. And it goes on to list a collection of vices, including a couple that we have on our list today. So there's biblical precedent for this idea. But, but the traditionalist, as we've come to know, it seems to have emerged somewhere around the third century of the church in the, in the monastic movement as godly men and women retreated to the desert uh, to, to escape the evils of society. They, they took refuge in, in caves and huts, at first alone and then eventually in communities. And they went there to seek God. To their surprise, they discovered that the evils of society followed and found them in those remote places and spoiled their communion with God and with each other. And, and then, to their dismay, they discovered that those evils were actually inside of them, that they brought them with them everywhere they went. And they, they studied these dark tendencies, and they came up with a list of seven of them. And a good part of the monastic life was devoted to overcoming these seven deadly sins. Well, a few centuries later, it was Pope Gregory the Great who popularized the seven deadly sins, if we dare to use that word. He was the one who said these are not just problems for monastics, these are problems for ordinary people in everyday life. He came up with the list as we know it today. He actually wrote eight volumes and thousands of words on the seven deadly sins. Wouldn't that make for some nice bedtime reading? Along about the medieval period, around the 13th century, the Catholic theologian Thomas Aquinas did some extensive study and teaching on the seven deadly sins. It was Tertullian who named them deadly back in the early days of the church. Aquinas preferred the word cardinal sins or capital sins. That word cardinal in the Latin means hinge. So the suggestion is that these seven sins open the doors to every kind of evil. In the 16th century, the Protestant reformers came along, and they were not as enamored with the, the seven deadly sins because it's not specifically a scriptural list. And so they took the seven deadly sins and kind of set them up on a shelf somewhere. But every so often down through the centuries, church leaders have stumbled upon this collection, blown the dust off them, and discover that they are valuable for spiritual formation. So here we are in this season of Lent, in a year in which we're inviting God to make us a missional people, 
inviting God to use these sins, this diagnostic tool, as a way of revealing what's wrong in our hearts, healing us and transforming us, that we might become the people that He's calling us to be. Now, we don't actually have seven Sundays to work with the way the calendar falls, so we're going to have to double up just a little bit. So here's the list and the order in which we will talk about them. Beginning today with pride. Uh, next week, I'll be speaking about anger in the morning, and Tim Galley will do gluttony in the evening. So you can choose your poison or come for both if you'd like next week, <laughs> all right? Uh, week number three, I'll be speaking on lust with a paper bag over my head. Uh, week four, Jim Ennis will be speaking, and he'll take greed and envy and kind of do them together. And then the final week, I'll be speaking on sloth if I feel like it, okay? <laughs> so, now, a series like this could get pretty dark and discouraging. Our goal is not merely to obsess over what's wrong but to find help and healing so we can get better. And so each week, in addition to identifying the deadly sin, we'd also like to propose a corresponding virtue. We'll call it the lively virtues in contrast to the deadly sins. Now, you can probably figure out that uh, this week's lively virtue will be humility. Now, the problem is that getting from one column to the other, from vice to virtue, is not all that easy. There's no pill you can take that will make you humble. Then you really can't grit your teeth and try harder either. In fact, if you try hard to be humble, you usually end up being proud. So it just doesn't work. This is where most of the teaching on seven deadly sins breaks down. It doesn't help us get from vice to virtue. And so each week as we make our, through, our way through, we'd like to propose an antidote for each of these maladies, a healthy habit that can help us move from vice to virtue. And so if you want to learn how to get from pride to humility, you'll have to hang with me for the next few moments, okay? So let's get started with this deadly sin that we call pride, and it typically, traditionally, is number one on the list. Now, it's pretty clear from the Scripture that pride is a problem. From beginning to end, all throughout the Old Testament, we, we hear about the Lord's um, opposition to pride. Proverbs 16 is a good example. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Better to be lowly in spirit and among the oppressed than to share in plunder with the proud. Lots of verses like that through Proverbs and the whole Old Testament. Well, the New Testament carries on that theme. Jesus, of course, devoted a good deal of His ministry to confronting the, the pride and the arrogance of religious leaders and political leaders and self-righteous people. A little later on, Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, writes, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Later on, the Apostle James writes, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so throughout the Scripture, it becomes pretty clear that God has a very low tolerance for pride. But now, why is that exactly? Well, the dictionary defines pride as a feeling of deep pleasure or satisfaction 
derived from one's own achievements. Now, that doesn't sound so bad, does it? And it raises one of the questions we have about this list of deadly sins. They don't seem all that deadly. If you're going to make a list of deadly things, sins, shouldn't it start with things like murder, hatred, adultery, robbery, drunkenness? I mean, lust and greed and pride, these things are unseemly, but are they, are they deadly? I mean, what's wrong with feeling pleasure and satisfaction derived from our own achievements? Isn't self-esteem a good thing? I mean, even Mr. Rogers said we should be proud of ourselves. Here in America, we've turned pride into a virtue. We're actually proud of being proud. <laughs> Stop with the, peruse the magazines at any checkout counter, and they're plastered with pictures of beautiful people, powerful people, successful people. They're not hiding their achievements or their abs. They're, they're flaunting them, and we're admiring them. I mean, how many TV shows today are based on the premise of ordinary people showing off their talent, singing, dancing, surviving, whatever it might be, to grab 15 minutes of fame? Football player makes one play, goes on a rant, taunting his opponent, declaring his superiority, and he's the talk of the nation for the next two weeks. I mean, pride seems to be working for these people. So what's so deadly about it? Well, the problem with pride from a biblical perspective is that it leaves God out of the picture. Pride causes us to forget that God alone is great and worthy to be praised, served, and trusted. Pride causes us to forget that every good thing, every human achievement comes ultimately from God's grace and goodness to all of us. Pride pushes God off the podium. It has us believing that whatever good things we have attained or achieved in life are a result of our own achievements, our hard work, our good looks, our smarts, our tenacity, our talent, whatever it might be. We make ourselves the source of all good things. And that very quickly puts us at the center of our own little universe. And when we're at the center of the universe, then everyone else orbits around us. And God becomes an afterthought if we think about Him at all. And so we're going to define pride from a biblical perspective this way. An unholy preoccupation with self. An unholy preoccupation with self. Now, remember, there's, there's nothing wrong with being occupied with yourself to a certain degree, being attentive to your needs and your interests and your ambitions. We're going to find that out in a few minutes. The problem with pride is that we become preoccupied with ourselves, occupied with ourselves first before everyone else and before God. And so this preoccupation becomes unholy. It forgets that God is the source of all things and the only one worthy of praise. 
So now we're beginning to understand why pride appears traditionally at the top of the list of, of sins. If these sins are deadly, then pride is the deadliest because it separates us from God. When pride has its way, we end up exalting ourselves, serving ourselves, trusting ourselves, instead of worshiping, serving, and exalting God. It's a violation of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Pride is the ultimate form of idolatry, self-worship. And it's been with us for a very long time. All the way back in the beginning, Adam and Eve were given everything they needed for a good and meaningful life. And all was well with them, with each other, with God, and with all of creation until the tempter came along and tempted them to eat from the one tree the Lord had warned them not to eat from. And what was Satan's ploy? You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You will be like God. That's all they needed to hear. And the seed of sin was sown in the human heart. Next thing you know, Cain kills Abel. Why? Because he doesn't like the way God is running things. And before too many generations have passed, human beings are rallying at a place called Babel to declare their independence from God. Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. And these many millennia later, we are still at it, exalting, serving, trusting ourselves. Now, we have a lot of words we use to describe a proud person, arrogant, egotistical, conceited, Vain, self-centered, self-absorbed. The problem is we almost always use those words to describe other people, right? <laughs> the thing about pride is that everyone else knows you have a problem before you do. So what are some of the symptoms suggesting you might have a problem, an unholy preoccupation with yourself? Well, how about name-dropping? mirror-looking, calling attention to yourself, putting other people down, choosing your friends based on what they'll do for your image, talking over top of people, always having to get your way, always needing to have the last word. My wife suggested I might want to include that one. I don't know why. <laughs> Grabbing credit whenever you can. Not being able to apologize. Leaving God out of the conversation. Thinking that it's always about you. Now my guess is we can all find ourselves somewhere in this list of behaviors. In fact, I thought about titling this sermon... You're so vain, you probably think this sermon's about you. 
that when we were planning this series, our teaching team, we, we all agreed that we didn't want this to become a finger-pointing kind of a series. And so we who teach, we're going to have to be ready to admit our own struggles. I'm saying to myself, what do you mean, we? <laughs> well, as it turns out, if I were going to rank the seven deadly sins in terms of degree of difficulty for me, Pride would probably be at the top of the list. I blame my parents. <laughs> I was a firstborn child, so for two and a half years, I was the center of the universe. And most firstborns have a difficult time ever getting past that need for attention and, uh, and approval and this sense that they must be at the center of everything. Even though I make a living teaching other people to trust God, it's amazing how often and easily I can leave him out of the equation, thinking if I just work harder, try harder, talk better, that everything will work out. When I make my annual visit to celebrate recovery in January, I typically introduce myself by saying, my name is Brian. I'm a grateful believer in Jesus Christ in recovery from self-reliance and people-pleasing. A few years ago, I was on a prayer and study retreat at a, an Episcopal retreat house not too far away from here. And it happens that the practice at this particular retreat house is the discipline of, of silence. So there's no speaking. There's no conversation on the grounds at all except for prayer and worship. So when we all came together for a service in the middle of the day, a handful of brothers who were in residence there and a dozen or so retreatants like me, all we were allowed to do was to share with each other our first name and the peace of the Lord. And I was amazed at how difficult that was for me. I wanted people to know who I was. But I was a senior pastor of a big church. That I cleared my busy schedule to be with God for a couple of days. And if we got talking long enough, it might slip out that I was fasting, too, and then they'd really be impressed. <laughs> I, I so wanted them to think highly of me. That's why the discipline of silence is so powerful. It prevents us from using words to manage other people's opinions of us. It requires that we be who we really are before God and each other. And as difficult as that is, it leads us towards the lively virtue that corresponds to pride. We're calling it humility. And that's probably no surprise. We find it throughout the Scripture. James 4 again, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, like pride, humility is one of those things that's easy to spot and hard to define. So I went to the dictionary looking for some help, and you know how the dictionary defines humility? Lack of pride. <laughs> so that's not much help. So let's go to Scripture and see if that might help us. Let's go to Romans chapter 12, verse 3, where we read, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment 
in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. So we're not supposed to think too highly of ourselves because that's pride, but we're not supposed to think too lowly of ourselves either. We're to think of ourselves with sober judgment, sound judgment. Another translation puts it, be honest in your evaluation of yourselves. And that evaluation is not to be based upon what others think of us or what we think of us, but what God thinks of us. Notice what he says, in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. The Bible tells us in many places what God thinks of us. It tells us that he loves us in spite of the fact that we're sinners. It tells us that we are each fearfully and wonderfully made in his image. It tells us that we are eternally valuable to him. It tells us that when we turn to Christ in repentance and faith, we're forgiven for all that sinfulness. We become children of God. We're filled with his spirit, brought into his family, empowered for ministry, and promised a home with him for all of eternity. That's how God thinks of us. In fact, in this very passage, Paul goes on to remind us of those things. He says, just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. And he goes on to list some of the gifts of the Spirit. Some, some encourage, some teach, some lead, some serve, some give, some show hospitality and mercy. Years ago, I came across a definition of humility that I've never forgotten. It's from the writings of, uh, of Thomas Merton, a spiritual guide of the last century. And he says, humility is being precisely the person you actually are before God. Humility is being precisely the person you actually are before God. See, humility isn't thinking poorly of yourself. It's not beating up on yourself or minimizing your worth. It's simply being honest with yourself and others and God, with who you really are and what's going on with you. And the starting point for every human being is that we are persons made in the image of God, designed for glory, and gifted to do something good and beautiful in this world. That is true of every single human being, of everyone listening to me here today. This is true. In fact, listen to how Merton completes his thought. If you have the humility to be yourself, you will not be like anyone else in the whole universe. Isn't that great? And if that's not a basis for healthy self-esteem, I don't know what is. And see how liberating it is? When you know precisely who you are before God and in Christ, you are free. You're free to be your true self all the time with everyone. You're free to make a mistake and say, I'm sorry. You're free to admit that, yes, you're a sinner. You're free to do something good without someone else having to notice it. You're free from having to compete with everyone else and their looks or their talent or their success or their money or their spirituality. You're free to let others have their way, free to lose graciously, 
free to rejoice at someone else's success or promotion because you know exactly who you are and you know there's no one else like you or loved like you in the whole universe. So this is our first lesson in our series. We are freed from pride when we remember who we are before God and in Christ. We're freed from pride when we remember who we are before God and in Christ. Before God, we are human beings made in His image, destined for glory, and gifted to do something good in the world. In Christ, we are forgiven sons and daughters of God, filled with His Holy Spirit. And so we exchange this deadly sin of pride for the lively virtue of humility. But we're not done yet, are we? We have to come back to the chart one more time and find out how do you get from column A to column C, from pride to humility. You can't get there by trying harder. If you've ever seen someone try to be humble, it's very awkward. <laughs> so how do we get there? If pride is the sickness, what's the antidote? I'd like to suggest worship. Worship. And I find that in... Paul's writing here in this very same passage from Romans chapter 12, if we back up to the first verse of the chapter, he writes, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual worship. This move from pride to humility, it begins with an awareness of the mercies of God that He loves you in spite of your sinfulness, that you've been forgiven for all your mistakes, that you are His child now and forever. In light of all that mercy, you are free now to be who you are before God and in Christ. Worship gets us there. Every time we stand and sing, holy, 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 we're reminded that He's God and we're not. And every time we stand and sing, in Christ alone my hope is found, we're reminded how loved and secure we are in Christ. We saw this dynamic at work this past Wednesday night at our Ash Wednesday service. We had hundreds of folks here on Wednesday evening from all of our campuses coming together for an evening. Great crowd of middle and high school students as well. We spent a good portion of that service naming and confessing our sins. The very same sins that we've been talking about here this morning. And it was, it was a sobering experience having to, to name those sins and face them, to admit them out loud in the company of people, to acknowledge that all these things are knocking around inside of our hearts. It was sobering. But we were also reminded that night that 40 days from now, we'll be celebrating the, the work that Christ did for us, forgiveness and freedom, the, the cross and, and the empty tomb. At the end of the service, we came forward, many of us, to receive on our foreheads or the back of our hands the sign of the cross made with ashes. And we heard the words, each one of us, Remember, from dust you have come 
and to dust you will return. Pretty sobering. You don't think too highly of yourself when you've got a smudge on your forehead. But as we returned to our seats, we heard these words being sung. You make beautiful things. You make beautiful things out of dust. You, God, make beautiful things. You make beautiful things out of us. It was a liberating experience. That night, we were free. Free to just be who we really are with each other, with ourselves, and with God. Knowing that because of that, we're free now to become the people we were meant to be in Christ. And that freedom is available to each of us as we begin our journey towards Holy Week, the cross, and the resurrection. And so as we enter into this season, let's remember to worship. Let's make a commitment. Every Sunday, now till Resurrection Sunday, Lord willing, we'll be in worship. Let's carve out a few moments every single day to come before God and remember He's God and we're not. Let's invite the Lord to use this list to reveal and heal what's going on inside that we might begin becoming the beautiful people we were created to be in Christ. Let's pray for a moment. Thank you, Lord, for the freedom to come to you and to come together just as we are. We confess that's not always easy for us to do. We spend a good part of our energy every day, every week, managing other people's impressions of us. So we're grateful, Lord, that we don't have to do that today. We pray that you might continue to give us that freedom whenever we come together in large groups or small with one another. Pray that by your Holy Spirit in the days to come, you might search out, reveal, heal, and transform what's going on in our hearts, that we might be people who are fit for your purposes and for your glory, that it might lead to praise to you, joy to us, and blessing to others. Meet us now in these next few moments as we are reminded once again of who we are before you and in Christ.